We're picking up in our uh, atonement series. This is week three for us. And we're looking at this series because Christians have believed throughout the centuries that Jesus' death on the cross provided atonement between humanity and God. Now, atonement is one of those really religious-y words that sometimes we're like, okay, that's, we just say that in church. But what does it mean? Well, atonement, we, we use it and we mean the, the means of reconciliation between two parties. That usually uh, between those who aren't getting along, that there's atonement made for them to be able to get along. And, and in Christian theology, we talk about atonement being reconciliation between God and humanity. It's, it's a word where we, it literally means at one, to come to be at one together. And there have been a few different analogies that we've used when we've talked about the atonement that takes place on the cross of Christ. One that we've used throughout this series is the analogy of the diamond, where a diamond has 58 facets, if it's a good diamond, 58 cuts to it, and each of those cuts helps to increase the brilliance of it and to show off the spectacular reality of what that stone is. The same thing with the atonement. There are different facets, different ways of looking at it, and if we're only looking at one cut of it, we're not getting the full picture. We don't see the full spectacul- spectacularness, the full... Uh, beauty of what it is that took place. Another analogy that I heard this week from a theologian that I thought was great is the analogy of of a golf bag. That the atonement, sometimes the way we talk about it is like we're playing a, a game of golf with only one golf club. And if you're just using your driver for the whole game of golf, you're not you're not coming up with a great handicap. Like you you're not doing well. And so to talk about the atonement from different perspectives is like have us having a whole variety of clubs in our bag, that that we can uh, approach what it is that happened on the cross. Another way to look at it um, is is like a color spectrum, that when we talk about the atonement from different perspectives, we're seeing different hues of color in the image. Colors that if if we can only see red, then we're only getting a glimpse of what's there. But there's different colors that, that really bring to life the image of what happened. And the more that I'm studying these different perspectives of the atonement, kind of like this color wheel, the more I see that some of the colors kind of blend together. And it's almost kind of hard to separate them. And you may remember, if you've been with us, we've talked about the atonement from a couple different perspectives. We talked about it from the perspective of sacrifice our first week. How the Old Testament sacrificial system kind of sets up the expectation of what Jesus did on the cross. Last week, we talked about the idea of exile, of being far from our home and being brought back as a perspective of what happened on the cross. This week, we're looking at the cross from the perspective of ransom. Now, the reason we're looking at all these perspectives, like like the diamond, to make it more brilliant, we want to understand what it is that happened on the cross. We don't want to just approach it from one perspective because that doesn't really show us the full picture. We want to be able to see the glory of God's extravagant gift of, of atonement and reconciliation through his son on the cross. We want to be fluent in the language of the cross so that 
so that it just spills off our tongue as we're talking about Jesus and what he's done for us, that it's just so natural for us to speak of the cross rather than just have all these phrases that, uh, that don't really flesh out the picture. And I think the more we see different perspectives of what happened on the cross, it shows us how what Jesus did actually affects multiple areas of our life, that everything is affected by what happened on the cross. It's bigger and richer than just, he died to forgive my sins. There's more to it than that. And we can get a picture of that as we dive deeper into this. So we're looking at crucifixion as ransom. Now, this um, is famously shown in a passage in Mark and in Matthew. It's the same kind of phrase of Jesus, where Jesus speaking to his disciples says this, For even the Son of Man, that was Jesus' term for himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when we think of the word ransom, for most of us, like, outside of a religious context, we think of, like, the, the kidnapper's note with all the different cutout letters from, like, magazines, right? I have an example for you up here. <laughs> for those of you who struggle to read it, it says, Mom, we have kidnapped your iPhone. Bake us 100 cookies if you ever want to see it again. Yeah. This, <laughs> this is a, a ransom note. I, I found an online ransom note generator where you put in text and, and it creates ransom notes like this. Yeah. But this, this is the idea of, of, of when we hear the, the word ransom, this is kind of what comes to mind, right? And this is, this is a lighthearted example. But we've heard of situations, right, where someone is kidnapped or so, someone is captured, and, and there are demands made to be paid to the captor in order for their release, right? When we also look at the idea of ransom biblically, and, and, and go through the, the canon of Scripture, the, the term ransom is also deeply entwined with the term redeem, to be redeemed. And that is, is a price being paid in order to set a slave free from their slavery. So when we are looking at the term ransom, when it comes to the cross and throughout Scripture, we're seeing both this uh, a price paid to a captor to release someone from, from their captivity, but also a price paid that would set a slave free from their slavery. This is what we're getting at. And so in the context of atonement, ransom means that Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for our freedom. This is our kind of big main point this morning, that Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for our freedom. Now, before we dive into this too deep, I want us to kind of put on our ancient Israelite thinking caps for a second, all right? The Bible is an old book. It wasn't written in the 21st century by postmodern thinkers. It is written in the context of the ancient Near East. It's written in the context of the Roman Empire and the New Testament. We need to try to think like them for a minute, okay? If you are an ancient Israelite, your nation, 
Your cultural identity has been shaped by the fact that you were a people captive and released. Your whole history, your identity is marked and shaped by that. Think about it. The the stories of the Exodus, right? Where the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. That shapes them as a people in their, their cultural identity and memory. And they've been a people crying out to God to redeem them, to ransom them from their captivity. And the major moment that defines them as a people throughout the Old Testament is God came and he, he sent these plagues against Egypt and he sent Moses in and he redeemed us from our captivity in Egypt. He ransomed us from our slavery. Then, centuries later, as they established themselves as a nation and wander more and more from God, the Babylonians come in and they conquer their land and they drag the Israelites into captivity in Babylon. They call this the exile. And so the people of Israel, they spent a couple generations not in their homeland, but as captives, as slaves in Babylon. And throughout their time, they are crying out for someone to redeem them, to ransom them from their captivity. This has shaped the minds and imagination of the Jewish people. And so for a Messiah to come who is crucified on the cross and his Jewish followers to say that his death was a ransom, this strikes at a core identity piece of the Jewish people. That God is doing something through this individual, through this Messiah, that would set the people free. We, we, we sing it in the, the hymn at uh, Christmas time, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. The longing of God's people to be redeemed, to be ransomed from captivity. Now, this is a more literal kind of ransom and redeeming, But the idea of a more cosmic ransom was still in the imagination of the ancient Israelites. Let let me point you to Psalm 49. I have this up on the screen. In Psalm 49, in verses 7 to 9, it says this, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. Now, this psalm is in the context of those who uh, were being uh, oppressed by, by people who had a ton of wealth. And the psalmist here is saying that, that even if you are the richest man in the world, you can't pay the price of your ransom. You can't free your life from the fact that you're going to die someday. This is, this is the context that this is given, but it's, it's a ransom in a bigger picture, a ransom from the fact that death is coming. There's ideas deeper than we were slaves in Egypt or we were exiles in Babylon, but there's a greater captivity that we need to be ransomed from. So when Jesus says he died as a ransom for many, what is Jesus freeing us from? What is it that we're enslaved to 
that we need to be ransomed from. And there are three main answers that you'll see given throughout church history or uh, that, is, that are mentioned in the New Testament. And these three main ones are death, sin, and Satan. And we'll, we'll unpack them briefly. Kind of like Psalm 49 gives this idea of even the wealthiest person can't pay their way out from death. The idea that we are captive to death is a reality. The, the idea that, that death is a consequence of our sin ever since the Garden of Eden, that death is something that's coming for all of us. Like Paul says in In Romans, the wages of sin is death, that it is a consequence that we are all captive to because of our sin. It's something we can't escape. It's something we can't buy our way out of. And the language used in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing, is one that that death is ruling us. That death is like our master. That, That death holds us captive. And we need to be ransomed from death. But even more relatable, maybe, than that is many of us are held captive by this fear of death. This continual sense of of what might happen to me. I think we've seen this, especially early on in the pandemic, that that when things started to shut down and there was all the, all, all the, the, the news of COVID and us not really understanding the virus, there we see the fear well up. And this captivity to fear of death that we have of, of could I die from this? How serious is it? And, and what do I have to do in order to, to make sure that I'm not affected or that death doesn't come to my door? We see it in the millions of dollars industry of people trying to push death away. It's interesting when you start to look into the whole like cryogenics movement of people who are trying to you know, freeze their bodies in order to avoid death. It, it's, it's niche, but it's growing. It's weird stuff. But billions of dollars that are spent in that area to try to push off death. We are captive to death because it's coming for all of us. And we can't buy our way out. As the psalmist says, the payment for life, the ransom for life is too costly. No payment. Is ever enough. The other thing that that the New Testament says that we're enslaved to is sin. That ever since our our first parents sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, sin has corrupted and infected and ruled over humanity. To the point where Paul in Romans talks about how all of humanity is enslaved to sin. In Romans 3.9, he's building this argument saying that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you don't really have an advantage. All of us are enslaved to sin. It means sin has a sway over us that, that, that plays on our natural heart desires in order for us to act in ways contrary to God where we can't outgrow that. Sin has a grip on us. He, he goes on further in his letter in 620, and he says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Paul is building this argument throughout Romans that we are enslaved to sin. And part of this ransom is that Jesus frees us from that slavery to sin. 
The other idea is that we're enslaved to Satan, which for many 21st century people, just whenever you bring up the idea of the devil or Satan, whatever, it just doesn't like jive well with 21st century postmodern thought for the most part. But there is a spiritual reality to the world. There is a fact that there is an, an enemy to God. One that in the New Testament, he is called the God of this world, lowercase g. He's the, the father of lies. He's the one who tempts Jesus in the desert and says, if you bow and worship me, I will give you dominion over all that you see. That he has sway over things. And in fact, some of the language that is used, especially by Paul, is um, in Colossians, is that we were uh, rescued from the kingdom of darkness under the reign of the evil one and transferred to the kingdom of his son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That there's this sense of we were taken from Satan's grasp and brought into the kingdom of God's son. It's something we need to be ransomed from. It's interesting too, I don't have a slide for this, I just added this to my notes this morning, but in 2 Timothy, Paul in writing to Timothy, he says that opponents of, of the gospel are, are uh, enslaved by the devil and they can be released by the good news, the hope of Christ. I'm just going to read this to you. Where Paul writes to him, he says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. There's this sense that, that humanity is under the thumb of the devil and that we need to be ransomed from that. Now, one of the big questions that you might be asking in, in kind of our language of ransom, is if Jesus' death on the cross is a ransom, a price paid for our freedom, who gets paid? Right? Like, who gets the hundred cookies in the ransom letter? Who, who's, who's on the receiving end? And throughout church history, there have been different kind of theories about this. Some say it's Satan that gets paid. Others say it's God that gets paid. Others say, well, death is kind of like this metaphorical, personified being in, in uh, the New Testament, and, and maybe death is paid. And it's not quite clear. And in fact, I think this is a helpful thing for us to understand the limits of the analogy. The, the way that we talk about ransom only gets us so far. And, and a great analogy that I've heard is kind of like, it's kind of like a vending machine. Like, you put in the money, you push the button, and the drink comes out. We don't see all the mechanics behind it. And there are going to be times where we don't see all the mechanics behind it. And we don't know entirely how it works. But this is the language that we're given. But there's some implications, I think. If we say that God... Uh, Jesus paid his life to Satan or, or to God or, or to death to redeem us. Maybe the, the most popular um, expression of ransom being paid to Satan 
it is seen in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right? If, if you remember that book or the movies, Aslan, who's this lion, is kind of this analogous figure of Jesus. And one of the children, instead of helping Aslan restore Narnia, chooses to go and to help the white witch who's holding Narnia under captivity. And because he wanted Turkish delight, which I didn't know was like a candy until, anyway. And it's not even good candy. Like he betrayed, anyway. The analogy always breaks down somewhere. But the white witch, she says that, that Edmund is hers because of how he acted. That she has him in, in her grasp. And so Aslan, he, he essentially makes a deal with the white witch. There's this scene where he goes and he walks with her. And they agree that he would give his life as a ransom so that Edmund could go free. And there's this, this scene of Aslan being taken by all of the ghouls and goblins and, and, and minions of the White Witch, and his, his mane is cut, and he's tied up, and they kill him on the stone table. And for those of you who've read the book, the next day the stone table cracks and Aslan's alive. It's very clearly an analogy about Jesus and the resurrection. But it's the, the idea that, that Aslan paid a ransom to the witch to release Edmund from her grasp. Now, that's one way to talk about it. But, but I think we, we'll probably struggle in our own thoughts of like, would God really kind of meet the demands of Satan? Or the fact that the resurrection happens, does that mean that like Jesus kind of like bait and switched the enemy and deceived him? I don't know. It's something for us to wrestle through because it's not clearly stated in Scripture. And a lot of it is going to be speculative and us thinking through the implications of that. The other idea is, was death paid? Is death kind of this personified force that, that holds us captive? And so Jesus' death, Jesus died and his life was given over to death so that all of us who believe in Christ could be freed from death's captivity, and though we die, we don't truly die. That's one way to work through it. But the idea that death is personified doesn't always sit well with some of us. We're going to have to work through it. But again, it's speculative. The third question, is God paid? And, and there are some kind of in, in the more Reformed tradition who, who are adamant about this, that, that Jesus' life was paid as a ransom to God to free us from the wrath that we're due. That kind of God had us captive to the wrath that is to come because of our sin, and Jesus' life was paid as a ransom to free us from that coming wrath. That's one way to talk about it. We're still struggling through the speculation of this, but here's what I'd say. Rather than Jesus paying a ransom to God, the language that we have in Scripture is that, God, uh, that Jesus is buying back a people for God. 
In fact, if we go to Revelation chapter 5, we have this picture of the, the redeemed humanity praising the Lamb, praising Jesus for His blood who was shed, praising Him that He's worthy. And it says, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That it's not so much Jesus' death was a ransom paid to God to release people from God, but rather Jesus' life was paid as a ransom to buy a people to be God's own possession. And we'll see that language repeated throughout the New Testament. Ultimately, we don't know who gets paid or whether the analogy just kind of breaks down at that point. The point of seeing Christ's death as a ransom is that our freedom has been purchased, it came at as a price, and we're not just freed from something, we're freed for something. The freedom that we receive isn't just a freedom from captivity, so now we're not slaves, and we can just go uh, about our merry business and do whatever we want. In fact, often what we celebrate as the, the liberation to do whatever we want leads to slavery, because we're following our own sinful desires. We are actually freed for something. Freed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's Son where we have a new king, where we have a, a new master, a new way of life that leads to the fullness of life. And Paul, he, he, he's not shy about this in his letters to the churches in the first century after Jesus' resurrection. In his letter to the Corinthians especially, he says this several times. And like, when we think of Corinth, where he's writing this letter, like we got to think about like seedy Las Vegas. Like, that's the kind of place that it was, all right? And so he says this to them. He says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We don't just do whatever we want with our bodies because truly they're, they're not just ours. We've been redeemed. We've been ransomed from slavery and we're now gods. We're now gods and so we use our bodies to honor God. He also, later in his letter, he says, you were bought with a price, using that same language, the same ransom language. And so he says, do not become slaves of human beings. This is part of a passage where he says, now that you're a follower of Jesus, your life is going to change, and there, there are some ways where you're going to have to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of the station of life you find yourself. So he says, for some of you, you are actually slaves and you've come, become a follower of Jesus. And he says, if you, can, if you can find a way to get free from your slavery, go for it. But he says, the truest freedom that you're longing for has actually been bought for you by Christ. But he says to those who have been freed, don't go and then enslave yourself to someone. Because at that time and in that culture, if you were in financial debt, you could pay it off by becoming an indentured servant. You could become a slave 
in order to pay off a debt. You could sell a kid into slavery in order to, uh, to get yourself out of the financial bind. He's saying you're a free person now. Don't go and be a slave of a human being. But ultimately, the ransom that God provides for us is not just for us to go from being slaves to to now we do what we want, but this picture of we've gone from being slaves to a cruel master to becoming a child of the king. We go from slave to family. Let me read to you Galatians 4. Paul says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. No longer are we slaves to sin, to the grip of death, to the power of Satan. We've been ransomed. No longer are we slaves, but we're a child of the king, part of a new kingdom, a new way of life, free from the grip of what used to hold us before, and we can walk in the beauty of that freedom. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you paid a price that we never could to secure our freedom. And I thank you that even though we live life now where, where we still struggle in our battle against sin and the enemy and even a fear of death, that the shackles are open. That we don't have to stay there. That we have been freed. So Holy Spirit, my prayer this morning for us in, in hearing the news of Christ's death as a ransom that that we would walk in the freedom that you've bought for us, that you've bought at the high price, that we would walk in a confidence that we're not slaves, but we're children of the King. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can you stand with me?